personally thank those guys who sang, the, thank the choir, uh, thank you instrumentalists as well. You don't get up and sight read the things that you do. You practice when we aren't here. And thank you. You've prepared. I mean, I don't know if you all think about this, but I don't just get up here, or Pastor Steve or the other pastors, we don't get up and just read the Bible and riff. Um, there's preparation that goes into that. But there's others who also prepare. Um, so I want to thank the musicians for taking the time to prepare to prepare our hearts, but then also them being prepared to lead you. We are in John chapter 13. John chapter 13. If you need a Bible, we have one available for you. Um, our ushers are in the back. They have one. So if you could just raise your hand where you are and we can get a Bible to you. John chapter 13 is where we'll be and we'll be reading our Bibles together. All right, looks like we are all good to go. So last week, Pastor Steve finished John chapter 12 and um, there's a pretty big change that takes place from John 12 to John 13. Um, if you've never read the Bible before, Jesus and his story is discussed at length in the first four books of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay, And there's differences. Uh, if you want to think about it, it's kind of like the same piece of music, just four different vocal parts. Soprano, alto, tenor, bass. Uh, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All the same song. It all agrees but there's different points of emphasis, right? Um, John, what we're going through here, spends the most time in the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. Like from John chapter 13 all the way through John 19, we have the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. Now, John was an eyewitness to it, uh, unlike uh, some of the other gospel writers. But, but John was an eyewitness, and, and he goes into great detail talking about these last 24 hours. And, and I guess I want to start off by thinking of Jesus as the man. If you knew that you had 24 hours to live, how would you spend it? I actually Googled this. Um, if you had 24 hours to live, what would you do? There's amazing answers out there. A common answer was I would be with people that I really love and who really love me. And, and Jesus does that, actually. He's with the 12 disciples. He's with people that love him and, and he loves. But I guess I want to reframe that question. If you had 24 hours to live and you knew that you were going to be brutally murdered and you also knew that the people that were closest to you would probably, not probably, they would bail on you when you needed them most, how would you spend those last 24 hours? Jesus knew what was coming. He predicted it several times to the disciples, at least three times. He also knew the manner in which he was going to die. He knew when his hour was going to come. In fact, at the very beginning of John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knowing that his hour had come, 
that he would depart out of this world to the Father. He knew what was about to happen. And what he did, and what we are going to be studying throughout the next several chapters, speaks to Jesus' priority of how he would spend the last 24 hours of his life. In fact, what we see is Jesus calling his friends, his friends, not just disciples, but friends, and modeling for them what would be the defining characteristic of Christians and Christians around the world. He would demonstrate that he loved them, and he wanted them to replicate that love to the world by preaching the gospel, to be sure, but first to one another. And so what we're going to see today as we look at these first 17 verses in John chapter 13 is that as Christians, if you're a Christian, you're a follower of Christ, you should love one another as Jesus has loved you. That's the main point for today. If you're a Christian, you should love one another as Jesus has loved you. Let's take time to read verses 1 through 17. I'll read the whole passage. Okay. John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments. And taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. Before we go any further, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon his word and our understanding of it. God, thank you so much. We thank you for our time. We thank you for the freedom that we have to openly discuss, read, pray, sing, share with one another your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. You are our rock and you are our redeemer. Jesus Christ has laid down his life as we've heard Jesus saves. And Lord, 
as we have even sung and aspired to, that beneath the cross of Jesus, we will gladly live our lives. So God, as we look into your word and as we see this modeled first by Christ himself, may your spirit have full reign within our hearts. May we openly welcome the word and welcome the changes that it necessarily makes. And Father, may those who perhaps are foreign to the word, those who are unfamiliar with the word and with Jesus, Lord, may they see one who loves them, who would, if he were here, even wash their feet. Lord, we pray for your will to be done and your name to be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as I said earlier, as Christians, you should love one another as Jesus has loved you. Okay, so how? Are you expecting to take your socks and shoes off by the end of the service and have us hand out basins of water for one another? No, we're not going to do that. But what we are going to see is what Jesus did and how he demonstrated a love for his disciples and in turn, how he wants us, if you're a Christian, to demonstrate love to one another. First way, how we should love one another as Jesus loved us is this. Commit to loving each other even when others are inconsistent. Commit to loving each other even when others are are inconsistent. And we see this in the first three verses. We see a commitment that Jesus has made. Now, in this passage, really in the first 18 verses, I know we only read through 17, but in the first 18 verses, the word know or the word derived from the word know takes place seven different times. In fact, we see it twice here in verses 1 and 3, or we see it in verse 1 and verse 3. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. But then in verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, we see Jesus having a knowledge not only of the circumstances, but also of the people with, that, that he was with. He knew Judas would betray him, verse 2. He knew that he was an unbeliever, that Satan would actually indwell him before the night was over. He also knew that the disciples would abandon him. He knew that Peter would deny him three times. In verse 37 of this chapter, he says as much. He knew that they would not understand him. He even says as much in this passage to Peter, what I'm doing now you don't understand, but you'll understand later. He asks them, do you understand what I've done? He knows this all about them. But he also knows that they were true followers of Jesus, save Judas. In this passage, I think John 13 and then John 14 it should really settle our hearts as to whether or not the disciples were genuinely followers of Jesus. Like, were they really saved at this point? I think John 13 and John 14 shows us that they were. Jesus says, you are clean. John 14, he says, I go to prepare a place for you, and I'm coming back to receive you as myself. There's been some debate as to when do the disciples really follow Jesus? I mean, when are they actually saved? And Jesus pretty much says, you're saved. But he knows 
the extent to their commitment to him and how it would flounder in the next 24 hours. And yet, how is his love described to them? Well, at the end of verse 3, it says, He knew that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. I'm sorry, verse 1. He knew that he would depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. There's a commitment that Jesus has made. If you write in your Bibles, this is a good place to put a cross-reference. At the end of verse 1 where it says, love them to the end, put a cross-reference to John chapter 19, verse 30. John 19, 30 is Jesus on the cross using or what were his, some of his last words, and he said, it is finished. It is completed. It is the end. Okay? I think there's a connection here. He loved them to the end, and then later on, within the next 24 hours, as he's about to breathe his last, he says, it's completed. He loved them to the end. To the end of what? To the end of giving himself for them to the end of giving over his life for them. You see, he had been given all things by the Father. And there was a level of authority that had he chose to exercise, he could have done at any point in time. He could have called angels down to deliver him from the cross. In that moment, knowing that Judas was going to betray him, he could have openly exposed him to the disciples. He could have judged him right then and there. He could have thwarted the plot by the Pharisees and the Romans. He had that authority. But he didn't use that in that way. What he did was he chose to follow his father, follow his father's plan, and to love these fickle individuals these inconsistent disciples, these individuals who would pledge their allegiance only when the going got tough, they got running. This is what our Jesus did. And as we look at the story as well, as we look at the account of what Jesus is doing, I think it's really important to see the detail that, that, that John records here. Because it's like he gives us a frame-by-frame -frame description of the foot washing. Look in verse 4. Jesus got up from supper, laid aside his garments, taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. There was a specific play-by-play -play that John was giving of Jesus washing his disciples. I mean, we've read in John, he heals a blind individual. He feeds thousands. He turns water into the wine. If Jesus was really about making sure the disciples' feet were clean, all he had to do was really think about it. Like, the end goal wasn't, oh, man, you guys have dirty feet. And the way that we're laying down, your feet are kind of in the other guy's face. So we got to take care of that because it's really gross. No. All Jesus had to do was think about it. And their feet would have been plenty clean. 
Jesus was about the process. How long does it take to wash a person's feet? I was just thinking about this. There's 12 guys in the room. I mean, at least. There's Jesus. He's got a basin of water. How long would this have taken? About 20, 25 minutes? One foot a person? I mean, one foot per, you know, two feet per person's washing one foot at a time. You know, you have like, what, 20, 25 minutes? And I doubt that they were just kind of going along along their conversation. There was clearly a period of awkwardness that, that Peter addresses. I'm bringing this detail to mind because what Jesus is doing is vividly illustrating the level to which he loved the disciples, especially in light of what the next 24 hours were going to be like. He's washing each one of their feet and going from person to person to person to person to person at six. To person, to person, to person, to person, to person, to person. That's 12. And they're watching it. I mean, we can read this in like 30 seconds. This was a good 20 to 30 minutes, I guess. The point wasn't, man, I want to get these guys' feet clean. The point was vividly illustrating love that he had for these disciples. Love that was really illustrating and foreshadowing the ultimate sacrifice that he would make for them. He loved them to the end of his work for them. So we see Christ showing us love, committing to love, even when others are inconsistent. Committing to love one another. Well, you say love one another. We see Jesus doing this. Where do we see the love another? Love one another. Well, well, let's keep moving here. Because we're going to see another way that Christ wants us to love one another. The second way he shows us how to love is to humbly serve even when others remain superior. First way, commit to love each other even when others are inconsistent. Second, humble yourself even when others remain superior. Now, the disciples' behavior in here should not be, I, I don't think, heavily criticized. This, this was out of the ordinary. At this time, Jesus washing the disciples' feet would have been very uncomfortable from the standpoint of, of there's a hierarchical structure that existed within their society in washing feet. We'll touch on that first. But before we, or we'll touch on that in a moment. But before we do, it's really important that we take another passage of Scripture and closely wed it to this account. And that passage of Scripture, maybe some of you may have thought of this already, is Philippians chapter 2. So keep your finger here, and let's turn to Philippians 2. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 5. Verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. What attitude? Well, back in verse 4, it says, Look out for the interests of others ahead of your own. Don't do anything out of strife or vainglory, 
but esteem others' interests as more important than your own. So when he says in verse 5, have this attitude, that's what he's talking about. Okay, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, or selfishly held on to, your translation might say, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. In the washing of the disciples' feet, we see an illustration of Jesus and his humanity, namely his condescension from who he is and was, God, being very equal God, yet taking upon himself the form of a servant, of a lowly slave. And I mentioned earlier that what was going on here in Jesus washing the disciples' feet had really just kind of a, 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 a societal impact in that what he was doing was he was upending a societal or social hierarchy. So let's think of it this way, okay? Let's imagine that there's three levels, okay? There's peers... That's lateral relationships, your peers. There's superiors, people that you'd look up to, people that you have respect for, people that you'd be perhaps willing to serve or sacrifice for. But then there's inferiors, people who you would be superior to. Okay? So there's peers, superiors, inferiors. And now imagine this from a, from a social construct standpoint. Jesus is inherently what in that category, in those categories? He's what? Superior, right? Being in the form of God. This is, this is God. And by the way, Jesus affirms that later on in, I believe it's, uh, I need to go back to John 3, uh, 13. He affirms this in verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, for you are right. That's what I am. Superior. There, with the disciples, he plays the part of what? Inferior. In that he was doing tasks that even peers did not do for one another. You see, in this society, by washing feet, this was a task that even some servants, some house servants, had written into their contract that they didn't have to do. This was like kind of the lowest of the servants. They were the ones that would have this responsible, the lowest house, house rank. Um, there is some record in, in, in early church history of, of followers who would wash the feet of certain rabbi. Like they, they, would, they would honor their teachers or they would honor perhaps a, a really uh, a greatly loved family member by washing their feet. But this is the only account in church history, and I would say ancient Near Eastern history that we have preserved, this is the only account where a superior washed the feet of an inferior. There's no other account of someone who had the status of leader, teacher, lord, demoting themselves, not just to peer, but to inferior. And this is why Peter responds the way that he does. You're not going to wash my feet. You know, 
Some theologians believe of all the feet that got washed that night, you know, Peter's were the biggest. They're the biggest because he had the biggest mouth and he was so used to putting his foot in his mouth that they had to be really big. It's conjecture. But what does Peter do? He speaks for the group. They're not going to wash my feet. And the language here in the Greek, you are not, you will never ever wash my feet forever. I mean, it's a double negative at the beginning and then at the very end of the, the phrase, it's forever. Like, you'll never do this and you'll never ever ever do this. Like, I don't know how more emphatic Peter could have been to say, Jesus, you're not going to do this. But what was Jesus doing? Jesus was humbling himself in love, providing them an example. Now, it's really important to understand, I think, both the theological things we can learn from this, but then also the practical. I think the practical is perhaps the most immediate, okay? What was Jesus, or what do we see in Christ's foot washing? Well, first of all, we see a lesson in humility, right? Christians must love one another, and we're going to get to that in the latter portion of, of this passage. We see a lesson in humility. But there's two other things that it's worth us giving some attention to before we move on. First of all, Christ, in this passage, testifies that he provides a once-for-all washing away of sin in his death on the cross. A once-for-all washing. If you're not back to John chapter 13, go ahead and turn there. Verse 6, he comes to Simon Peter and says, Lord, do you wash my feet? Or you will not wash my feet. Verse 8. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter says, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus says, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet. Basically, if you are bathed, you've already been washed. There's a testimony to the permanence of the washing that Jesus is talking about. Your feet only need clean, not all of you. What's he talking about? I think it's helpful to see, perhaps, the explanation that Paul gives to Titus in this. So, if you would, keep your fingers here. Turn to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. <clears throat> Titus chapter 3 and verse 3. For we also, we also once were foolish ourselves. And when Paul's saying we, he's talking about Christians. He's like, you, Titus, me, before we were saved, this is what we were like. We were also foolish. We were disobedient. We were deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. We spent our life in malice and envy, hating one another and hateful. But when the kindness of our God and Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. There's a washing of regeneration that takes place at salvation. That is permanent. When a person is saved, they are washed. And that is a once-for-all washing. It's not by a rite. It's not by a ordinance. It's not through baptism. 
It's through the blood of Jesus Christ. Yet the reality of our life is we still sin after we're saved. And the Bible speaks of a washing, not a washing of regeneration, not I lost my salvation, now I need to get it back again, but a washing of cleansing from one's sin. And I think it's helpful to see where John speaks of this in his epistle. So we're moving to different places. Turn to 1 John, 1 John chapter 1. First John chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 7. First John 1, verse 7. Same author, by the way, as what we're reading in, in the, the Gospel of John, just different letter. But if we walk in the light, verse 7, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The we here is Christians. If we confess our sins. So the washing that Jesus is talking about in John 13... Nothing that Jesus did with that water in the basin washed away any of the disciples' sins. If that were the case, Judas would have gotten saved, would he? So there's nothing mystical or supernatural about the foot washing that Jesus did with the disciples. It was a picture. But it was a picture of the cleansing that those who believed in Christ needed. But the disciples didn't understand that. They would later but they didn't at the moment. But that's what Jesus was teaching in this lesson. Christ showed us how we ought to love each other as Christians. And he did it, first of all, by committing, even when others were inconsistent. He was committed to his love to the end, even when his disciples weren't. And he humbled himself, even when others remained superior, when they could not understand just that step of condescension. But he does it one more way. Third and finally, Jesus shows us how we ought to love one another by serving in love even when others fail to appreciate it. By serving in love even when others fail to appreciate it. We're back in John chapter 13, and we're going to stay here the rest of the time. Verse 12. So when he had washed their feet, he had taken his garments and reclined at the table. He said to them, do you know what I've done to you? Obviously, they knew he'd washed their feet. Do you understand what I've done to you? Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. Let's work backwards here in this passage. If I, the Lord and teacher, wash your feet, if I, the superior, act the role of the inferior... 
then you, the peer, should act the role with peer. If I'm here and I can serve here, at minimum, you ought to love one another. Going back to Philippians chapter 2, don't turn there. Remember, Jesus was the humble servant, but he was also the one to whom every knee would bow and every tongue would confess. If Jesus then, being their teacher and Lord, should wash their feet, then they too should wash one another's feet. This isn't the first time Jesus talks to them about serving and the need for service. Remember back in Matthew 10? Matthew chapter 10, they're having this argument with each other. And Jesus, whoever would want to be the greatest among you should what? Should be your servant. One of the parallel accounts of this last time, this last supper, what, what theologians call the farewell discourse, in Luke chapter 22, Jesus brings up this aspect of service. And you know what the disciples do? They start arguing with each other about who's going to be the greatest. Now, keep in mind, this is Jesus' last 24 hours before he's about to die. He's committed to love them. He's humbly serving them. And they're arguing while he's teaching them the lesson that they should have learned. But he's chosen to serve them. What do we see Jesus doing? We see Jesus serving and meeting them in the mess. Meeting them in the mess they were about to create that they weren't even aware or failed to appreciate. So, a while ago, by way of illustration, a while ago, one of my children, I think I know which one it is, but for, you know, protecting the innocent, I want to, to keep it that way. One of my children, they were very, very young, and they weren't feeling well. And so my wife and I were sitting in, in our living room, and they were very young. And so we, we put her to bed, and, um, you know, she just needed to sleep. So we hear some coughing. And uh, Kelly and I look at each other. It's like, that doesn't sound like normal coughing. So we hear coughing. We go in. I walk in, check her out. She's sleeping. You know, at the time, cute little bob, blonde hair, you know, just... Pillow head, everything seemed okay. I'm like, hey, you all right? Yeah. I, and she said, yes. Something to that effect. And I'm like, okay, thought I heard something, but she's seemingly sleeping. But then as I stood there a little longer, I smelled something. I was like, something's not right. And there she is laying just perfect, smelling something. And I take the blanket and I pull it back. And, you know, have you ever had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich where you pull the bread, like, apart? <laughs> Sorry, vivid illustration, but that's about what it was. And it was awful. Like, awful. <laughs> but in that moment, as vile as that was, as a dad, my heart was pity and love and like oh girl you can't just sleep in that and so 
what do you do? You go and you pick her up. And she's a mess. And the bed is a mess. And this isn't a one-person job. So I'm like, hey, Kelly, come here, please. <laughs> and we get her, and I get her mess on me. And we put her in the bath, and we take off the clothes, and we wash. Why? Because it's awful, and it's filthy. But you can't just leave them there. You can't just, like, put the blanket back over and, all right, <laughs> parenting job done for the day. We'll find out, you know, Kelly will find that out later. No, you can't. Not if you love your kid, right? You do something. You, you, you take them in their mess because you love them so much. Listen, this is what Jesus has done for each one of us. That in our mess, if you're in Christ, he met you in your mess. And he didn't wait for you to clean yourself up and get yourself suitable till then. No, he changed you if you're in Christ. And for many of us at one point in time, and maybe some of you here currently, you believed at one time, there's no way I could approach God with everything that I've done. God, there's no way. I, the mistakes I've made, no. And, and maybe at one point in time, you thought you would take a lifetime to try to make up for it in hopes that when you stand before God and he kind of has your good and your bad, that whatever good you did to try to make up for that mess outweighs it. That's not the way Jesus works. That's not the way salvation works. He says... Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He takes us in our mess. And he took our mess upon him when he put himself on the cross. And he lovingly gave himself so that we would no longer have that mess. That's the Jesus we serve. But that's not the primary application of this text. primary application of this text is that Jesus did that for others too. Amen. He didn't do it just for you. So don't act like it. At some point today, I want you to look around the room. Maybe it's what we're saying Maybe it's while we're praying. Jesus washed the disciples' feet and gave an example so that they might love one another and serve one another. Because they have been loved, they have been served by Jesus himself. If you walk away being so thankful for Jesus... And so appreciative of what he's done in salvation. But you fail to see each other. You've missed the point of this passage. If you walked into this room and you hear the words spoken and songs sung. And then walk out week after week after week but don't see each other, what makes you different from a consumer? <clears throat> Jesus did this 
so that we might love one another. So that we would be willing to be foot washers. And I think sometimes when we hear that phrase, especially if you're familiar with this story, you're thinking about, okay, so what does that look like? How, should, how can I wash feet? Before maybe we, we land there, it's not so much the how we do it, but who ought to be part of it. Men, it starts, if you're married, with your spouse. And if God has given you children, it starts with your kids. That's the who to start off with. Look down the road. I'm a Christian first. I'm a husband second. I'm a dad third. Those are the roles God's given me. But then after that, I'm a brother. If we're called to love one another and we're with each other on a week-to-week basis, if Grace Church is your church, this is where it's going to be. Maybe not the only place, but man, it has to be here. Maybe not exclusively, but what are we doing? And this isn't like a, this is a, what Christ has done for me in picking me up in my mess, we all know we aren't finished products. We all know we need good feet washing. And when others love us, knowing that this is an ongoing process of cleansing, knowing that each one of us, even though if we're saved, we're saved by grace and our sins are forgiven, but we're still working through the process of sanctification, when we can be loved... Not by giving a pass, but loved. Isn't there joy? Isn't there unity? And man, of all the times we need that in our church, now's the time. Now's the time. God has called us not to just be generic foot washers. That sounds good, and it makes for a nice slogan but God has called us to love one another. Let's look around. We all have dirty feet. We all need regular cleansing. But we're also to be there for one another. And to those of you who maybe this whole Jesus, gospel, Bible thing is unfamiliar, could could today be the day that you stop believing that Jesus wants you to give yourself a bath before you go to him. That you don't have to spend a lifetime trying to make up for the things that you hope no one else knows about you or finds out about you. But rather that Jesus comes and has come to cleanse you with his payment for your sin, with his sacrifice to give you eternal life that comes through him. Would today be the day where we stop assuming a responsibility that we'll never be able to meet, but instead trust in the one who has proclaimed, if I've cleaned you, you are clean. The end. That's the Christ that we get to serve. That's the Christ that models true, humble, serving love.
But unfortunately, even within the 12, there's still one that rejects that. That's what we're going to be looking at next week. And what a sad, sad tale. And hopefully not true of the professing body of believers here. Okay? So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. Thank you for your loving kindness to us. Lord, when we handle your word, we're, we're well aware, as Isaiah said when he stood before you, that, that we, are, we are people of unclean lips and that we regularly need cleansing. But God, as we are mindful of our own condition, may we also be mindful of other believers as well. Those who come, those who perhaps struggle, those who perhaps create frustration in us. Why can't they just get it together? Why are they so stubborn? Lord, you've been gracious to us. You've humbly served and committed yourself to us. So may we in turn model that humility, that attitude of service and commitment to love with all who profess Christ and perhaps those who don't. But Lord, may we be skillful in who we do that with. May this body of believers, those who call Grace Church their church, may we be an example to one another of what that love is and looks like, but then going forward, an example to our world. Thank you so much for this day and for this time. In Jesus' name.